0: This is the first Sunday of Lent, which means <laughs> that we have 40 days. Well, we've had a few days checked off already, but we've got five more weeks of Lent after this week. So we are beginning um, a new series. We finished last week, The Partakers of the Divine Nature. We're going to look at a series called Cruciformed, A Cross-Shaped Life, uh, just up to Easter. And then after Easter, we will return to our Through the Bible Study which we'll pick back up in the Proverbs. But so for this Sunday and the next five, cruciformed, passages that talk about how do, we, how do we embody, how do we live, how are we shaped by the cross? Not just, that's where my sins were dealt with, and I don't mean just as if that's minimal, that's enormous. But Jesus also asked us, and this is what Lent is for, it's reminding that he asked us to take up the cross with him as we follow him. And so we're in 40, a season of 40 days of, of prayer, of fasting, of repentance, and saying, Lord, where am I wrong in my heart? Do some house cleaning in me. And uh, pull me out of the ways of the world. Save me from this crooked generation. And let me not be seduced by the spirit of this age. That's, that's what we want. And so we want, we want a cross-shaped, a cruciformed life. So Jesus told us, if anyone would come after me, let him... Deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Uh, what is a cruciformed cross-shaped life? <laughs> it is folly. It is foolishness to those who are perishing. What, I am, what we will be looking at tonight in the next five weeks is foolishness. You have to understand that. Most people in the world want nothing to do with a cruciformed life. What is crucifixion? It is the public humiliation of criminals and slaves in the Roman Empire. That's what it is. And Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, It is absurd that any of us should even follow the message of the gospel because it is lifting up the most despicable part of the human history. That a crucified one, accused of being a criminal... The death of a slave, they wouldn't even bury crucified people. Jesus was an exception because of those who came and asked for permission. They would just be left to rot in the elements or before the animals. That that, that we worship a God who came to us and became that. That's foolishness. And Jesus asks us to take the same sort of a shape in our lives and to carry the cross. We're called to participate with him to be crucified with Christ. This is foolishness. And even in the church... It's considered, at times, foolishness. The one teaching of Christ, I've said this before, the one teaching of Christ I have gotten the most hostile pushback on is when Christ says that we're to turn the other cheek, that we're to bless our enemies, that we are to take the road that says, I will take the wrong on your behalf. Yeah, it's foolishness. I don't expect all of us to be excited (laughs) over these next five messages and tonight's message. Um, But, with that said, in the same phrase, this is 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18, Paul said it's foolishness to those who are perishing, but the cross is power. It's the power of God to those who are being saved. So for those who have ears to hear and who have seen Christ crucified for them, We will realize that by taking on the cross, we will find the true power of God. The power of God is hidden in what is weak. It is not placed in the places of strength, as the world calls strength. A cruciformed life is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's power for those who are being saved. It is to have the mind of Christ. We're actually seeking the mind of Christ. So it'll be challenging, but the mind of Christ is challenging to get our heads around. That he would come and shun his glory to take on human flesh and would never use the God card to get him out of trouble, but would suffer on our behalf. This is the mind of Christ. We uh, we actually read that passage uh, right before worship. And then, uh, finally, a cruciformed life is actually our identity. Also, we prayed, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in this flesh, in this body, in this age, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is my identity. I'm no longer Brandon James McCulloch. I am crucified with Christ. Nice to meet you. What does that look like to live that? That is what we will be exploring. So tonight, we are going to be looking at Matthew 4. It's the fitting beginning to our 40-day journey, because Jesus had a 40-day journey in which he learned the denial of self in order to put God at the center of all things. So tonight, we will see that Jesus overcame the devil in temptation. He overcame the devil in temptation. Nobody throughout the Old Testament was able to do that but then Jesus at the beginning of the New Testament overcomes the devil in temptation and that we will see the cruciformed life also celebrates triumph over the devil in temptation. So if we take the cruciformed life, we will find more success over those temptations in our life. So Romans chapter 6 is uh, where we see that this, um, this cruciformed life is actually meant to give us power over sin. um, Romans chapter six, verse one says this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? No. How can we who died to sin still live in it? If you've been crucified with Christ, you've died to sin. How can you still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. This being crucified with Christ, this cruciform, cross-shaped life, is nothing other than saying... The life I was born in must be buried so that I can take the life of Christ in me. Christianity is not me trying to be Christ. It's me receiving Christ in me so that Christ is lived through me. It's a great exchange. It just calls for some humility and some cross-bearing. So then Paul concludes in 6.12, Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body. To make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been bought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you. Since you are not under law but under grace. So the cross is actually freeing us from this tyranny of sin which, which entices us with these desires and then these passions that it's really hard to temper down once they're excited and then we go do it because we're slaves to it. The cross says all of that can perish and God will give us power over these things. This is the cruciformed life and this is what we're going to see Jesus engage with the devil. So, Let us read Matthew 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter, that is the devil, came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The devil, I can imagine I'm shrugging. All right, try this one. Verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. That should give you chills. Satan just quoted Psalm 91 to Jesus. But then Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6 in return. Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So take that one. Again, the devil took him. To a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and he said to him all these i will give you if you will fall down and worship me and jesus said to him be gone satan for it is written you shall worship the lord your god and him only shall you serve then the devil left him And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. When we read Matthew 4, we should remember Adam and Eve in the garden, who were also tempted by the devil. But theirs didn't go over so well. No, it is written no resistance, no devil having to try different angles to get them, just a simple eat from the tree, and they ate. It was very straightforward. So the devil comes slithering along again, if you will, and says, oh, I've been down this road before. The whole history of the Old Testament is in my hands. This will be easy. Jesus, do it. Whoa, he must have been taking it back. Okay, let's try this again. Jesus, do it. Fine, my best trick yet. It's never failed. All the world rulers have done this one. Jesus, take it all. You just must serve me. And the devil flees. He recognizes he's in the presence, finally, of not just mere mortal flesh, but God come united in mortal flesh to give them the deliverance to say no to the devil. Brothers and sisters, what we have before us is the new Adam, who rather than going with sin and with the devil, has actually stood up to him and said, no, no. Liberty, liberty, freedom. Took all my attempt, I had an attempt, uh, never mind. Uh, Liberty, liberty, liberty. It's a commercial jingle that my son son quotes all the time. And I just said, liberty, liberty. I'm like, freedom. (laughs) Um, I had to share my, my internal working there with you. Okay, where were we? Jesus. Oh, Adam and Eve. Uh, so we, we remember that. But here's Christ, the new Adam. And he says, humanity now has the ability to say no. We have the ability to say no. Then we think of Israel. Because Jesus was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. And so we're reminded that as Israel failed again and again, Christ The fulfillment of Israel is not failing again and again. In fact, the three ways that Jesus is tempted are the three ways Israel was tempted. Each time he responds to the devil, look, I'm not going to grumble and complain about food like they did to Moses, Moses told them, you shall live by not bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. They tested God several times. Will he give us meat? Will he give us water? Will he leave us out here to die? Over and over, they tested him. And Moses, in the stories of their testing, said, you shall not test the Lord. So when you go to the promised land, don't test him anymore. And then Moses also told them, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So when you go to the promised land, don't serve the idols like you did with the golden calf. Don't serve the Lord. And so here Jesus is in the wilderness. He's replaying the history. And like Adam and Eve failed, but now he's succeeding. And Israel failed. He's now succeeding. Humanity, because God became flesh and has joined humanity with his ability to say no to the devil, we have in him, only in Christ, do we have the ability to say no to the devil. His power in us can say no to the devil. If you've been trying to say no to temptation and sin and continually fail and remain in bondage, it's because you're trying in your own power and your own ingenuity to try to overcome the devil. Well, guess what? The devil is so much smarter than you. He's been at the work of making humans fall for millennium. He's seen every trick in the bag. And he even thought he could quote scripture to get Jesus. He knows all the tricks. We must do this in Christ. We learn that Christ is our victory. Okay, so these temptations. Real quick, we're going to address what they are, and then we're going to, we're going to look at how to overcome temptation in Christ. Um, what is going on here with these three? Um, I, I, it, it just dawned on me this week that we usually look at these three temptations as three isolated tests. Try this sin. Try that sin. Try that sin. But I actually want to suggest, I'm totally suggesting because it hit me just this week, maybe these three temptations are actually the three ways we're tested by every single temptation to sin. In other words, all sin is a temptation to succumb to the indulgences and desires of our flesh. Turn bread into turn the stones into bread. All temptation is a lack of trust in God. Put him to the test. All temptation is ultimately going to lead us to idolatry that we worship satan or a thing other than the lord our god so temptations come to us and test our desires if you look at verse one it said that after 40 days um it's actually verse two it says that jesus was hungry he was hungry so the devil says turn these stones into bread i always would be like
1: i totally would if i
0: could what's wrong with eating what's wrong with snacking Nothing, actually. Nothing. I believe the way we should see this, when it says that Jesus was hungry, it's not an obvious statement. He fasted 40 days, 40 nights, and he was hungry. Duh! That's not what it's... If it's saying it, it's for a reason. And what I believe is that we should hear this and read this in light of the context of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years, where when they were hungry, it wasn't, oh, my tummy's growling, I want to eat. It was rather, we're sick of this manna! What is this stuff? Give us meat! And in Numbers 11, it said that they craved. They had a strong craving. This isn't you wanting a hamburger. That's not the strong craving here. The strong craving was that they, they despised what God was providing for them. And they wanted something from their fleshly motivations. And it said that as they were eating before the, while the meat was still in their teeth, the plague came and they got sick. We can see that there was sin in their hearts and what they were demanding. When it says Jesus is hungry, we should see that this is the passions of his flesh trying to control what he desires. And the devil is offering him, hey, you want it, so indulge in it. Look at all these rocks. Turn it all to bread and eat as much as you want. Indulge in it. And it's not... For you, it may not be food, indulging in food. It might be indulging in television, in information. It might be indulging in sleep. It might be indulging in drink. It might be indulging in all these little pleasures that you probably don't need in your life or indulging yourself in shopping or indulging yourself in the accumulation of wealth. Whatever your indulgence is, all sin is a temptation to indulge ourselves in something because we want to be God. That's the first temptation, or that's the first way temptation tests us. The second way temptation tests us is it, it it tests our trust in God. You'll notice that twice the devil comes to Jesus and says, this is in verse 3, if you are the Son of God, and then in verse uh, 5. It should be in verse 5. Why am I not seeing it? This is always so embarrassing when you're just... Six. Oh, it is. Yes, there it is. Okay. I can get this bookmark out of the way, I guess. Um, if you are the Son of God. So there you go. Twice he comes and says, if you're the Son of God. And the second time, so if you are, prove it. Jump off, he will save you. Well, Israel in the wilderness tested God. We remember everything we ate in Egypt, and out here, what? You brought us out here to die? They aren't trusting God with that attitude. They're putting him to the test. They're forcing God to provide for them on their terms. That's testing God. Will God do what I tell him to do? That's one of the tests in temptation. Or am I going to trust that God is going to give me exactly what I need when I need it? Temptation thrusts us out of the realm of trusting God as our father. And then third, temptation tests our loyalty. That's where we see when he's offered everything, all the kingdoms of the world, which Jesus inherits anyways, but the means is different. Um, when he's offered all the kingdoms, the devil says, you must fall down and worship me instead. And then Jesus says, no, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. All temptation is a test of our loyalty. So when I sin, I have claimed my, my loyalty is with the devil, Now, we may not say my whole life is loyal to the devil because I sinned once. Of course not. We're fallen and we're going to sin. But what we need to recognize is every time that we do, we have looked at what God says and what the devil is saying. And we chose in that moment to side with the devil. It's worship of something other than God. And we must be very aware of what's happening there when it happens. So those, that's the temptations and the three ways that uh, any temptation tests us in those ways. Our desires, our trust in God, and our loyalty to God. Okay, but the good news, brothers and sisters, is that Christ triumphs in these temptations. So you might know this very well. It's Hebrews 4 verse 14. Since then, We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we don't have a high priest, Jesus, the one before God representing us. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He triumphed. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because he's been there, brothers and sisters, he will be there for you. If you ask him to help you through it, he will be there. We have the access. First Corinthians ten thirteen. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. But God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. You will never be in a spot that you can't get out of it. And so Paul continues to say, but with the temptation, he will always provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That's the good news. Jesus triumphed in his testing so that we can have a way out and he's showing it to us and he will be there to help us because he's been there. All right. So let's talk about our temptations as we're in this season where we're more alert of the ways we need to change (laughs) <laughs> why does God allow us to be tempted? Why doesn't he just stand there and say, Satan, not ever again come near Michael Scott. <laughs> you just happen to be in the wrong glance at the wrong time. <laughs> don't, don't ever, don't ever come near. Why doesn't he just stand as our bodyguard and protect us so that we never get tempted? Well, Because actually, temptation is not wrong in itself. Temptation is simply a test to see where we're at. Here's what we read in scripture. In James 1 verse 2, we read that he tells us to count it joy when we are tried because the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. That's strength. And steadfastness will then produce, when it will become perfect and complete, and we won't lack anything. So the first reason God will let us be tempted is because it conditions us to become stronger. Every time I have to choose him over the devil, the devil loses his hold over me. And Christ is glorified in me. Every single time I make the choice, I'm strengthened. Second reason we get tempted is for our holiness. Hebrews 12 verse 10 tells us that God disciplines his children What you should think of that is not spanks his children. That's not what he means by discipline. It means trains us through hardship. He trains us for, quote, for our good that we may share his holiness. Temptation draws us into his holiness, actually. And finally, we are tempted because it brings about humility and examination it helps us to examine, to test ourselves, and it brings humility as we get examined and tested. This is actually what Moses said to Israel at the end of their 40 days in the wilderness. Deuteronomy 8, verse 2, he tells them that these 40, day, these 40 years in the wilderness, God used to humble you and to test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So guess what happens when I'm tempted? I find out real quick what's in my heart. I find out really quick. And sometimes I'm humbled. I'm always humbled. The fact that I must cry upon God frequently in the things I'm going through, that humbles us. And it shows us what is in there. And what, what are we desiring? When I'm tempted, I'm going to find out real quick. What do I love? What do I desire? What do I want? And it's actually gifts so that we can see. Do I love the Father or do I love the world? First John chapter 2 tells us that you know if you love the things of the world, the love of the Father cannot be in you. For the love of the world, the things of the world, is, he calls it the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Very likely mirroring the three temptations here. These are passing away, but God is forever. If you love the things of the world, the love of the Father is not in you. So it's a test. It shows us what's in us so that we can respond appropriately. Um, that's why we're tested. So, how do we triumph when we're tested? How do we triumph? Let's look at our triumph. First and foremost, we must get this crystal clear. Christ triumphed over the devil in temptation. He did it first so that we can do it. If Christ didn't come and if he wasn't tested and if he didn't triumph, we would be like Adam and Eve going, Oh, yes, I want that. Give that to me. Oh, cool, slithering serpent. You're wonderful. You got great and in- original ideas. <laughs> I never thought of it. That's why it's called original sin. It was not something God gave to us. <laughs> and so we that's where we would be. But Christ comes. He triumphs so that we can triumph. So first and foremost, let's get that straight. Our triumph is not in us. It's in christ okay okay now let us therefore in christ in christ he was the one who on the cross crushed the serpent under his heel let us enjoy doing the same thing in christ let's crush the serpent underneath our heels so the first way to do this is to be watchful this is how we triumph in, in, in temptation. We triumph by being watchful. We cannot go through life neutral and just, yeah, I just kind of do just face things as they come to me. And friends, if we are not watchful and vigilant to the fact that the devil wants us, we will walk right into his hands. He is so good at fooling us. He can make lies look like truth. He can make what is bad and harmful look incredibly enticing. And even though you see this will not go down a good path, you are so drawn by your feelings toward it that he manipulates and draws us that way. We must be watchful to understand that I cannot live life simply saying if it feels good, do it. Or if there's an impulse, it must be natural and I'll follow it. No. We must be watchful because he's crafty. In a very... Uh, it, 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 Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he's talking about the Israelites in the wilderness and he says like their their stumbles in the wilderness were written down so that we could learn from them. And then right after that he says, "Take heed if you think you stand, lest you fall." If you're not watchful, if you're not taking heed, you will fall. So learn from Israel's mistakes. Learn from your past mistakes. Learn from the mistakes of others. Be watchful. Understand how the devil works, or you will fall. Be awake. Be vigilant. In a very chilling verse in Luke 22, Jesus says to Peter, this is after the Last Supper, he says, Peter, Satan has asked me for you. He's asked to sift you like wheat. But take heart, I have prayed for you. Oh, thank you, Jesus. But Satan asked him for Peter. Satan asked God for Job. He wants us. This, ugh, I don't like saying that because usually we say, God wants you. Like, that's the context. But we're not saying that right now. I mean, he does. But, but what we're saying is that Satan wants you too. We must be watchful. He's asking for us, and he's never, he's more subtle than just, get him once, done. It's in little increments as we slip and shift. It's so important that we're watchful. I think that's also one reason why it's so important that we're willing to confess our sins before God, to have that in our prayer, so that we can be watchful of all the little ways that we're off. Because if we're not, they grow and they snowball. Peter learned from this, and so in his first letter, 1 Peter 5, verse 8, he actually says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So what does he say? Be sober minded, be watchful. So, in order to do this, be watchful, we have to acknowledge that there is a devil. It's actually very popular today to diminish and disregard the devil. All things are just sort of, it's just the way we are. We sin. There's been a real diminishment in the fact that he exists and he's out there to wreak havoc and he's behind a lot of the darkness in the world. But on the other hand, we can get overly infatuated with the devil. He's in every corner and we got to like, Sprinkle holy water on everything <laughs> or something to just because we're so superstitiously afraid. C.S. Lewis, in his um, mind-warping, Michael Scott has told me, his mind-warping book, The Screwtape Letters, uh, he talks about, it's, fict- it's fictional, but there's a lot of truth in there about devils writing to each other and how to trip people up. And um, in, the, in the preface, before the actual Screwtape Letters begin, Lewis starts off by saying this. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased, the devils themselves are equally pleased by both errors, and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. They want us to take these extreme views. They do not want us just to take them seriously and to shun and be horrified by them they want us to be wow devils or devils now we must understand that the devil is at work and we can fall into his traps but we must not (laughs) occupy ourselves with the devil christ is stronger he's greater and he's in us so we must be watchful how are we watchful in prayer Over and over, the Bible says, watch and pray. Be watchful in prayer. Prayer is how we watch. Prayer is how we're aware. And I shared just just a moment ago, pray confessions. That helps you to see where the devil has been active in your life or where you're prone to fall. But also, um, Paul says in Ephesians 6, that he wants us to pray in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints um keep alert with all perseverance while you pray for each other so that's right there he's telling us that prayer keeps us alert colossians 4 verse 2 he asks us to to continue steadfastly in prayer being watchful in it with thanksgiving so prayer keeps us watchful and of course Jesus' famous words and when he's in the garden of seminary he says watch and pray lest you enter into temptation for the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak so watch and pray Number two, so first, be watchful, specifically in prayer. Second, the way to triumph temptation is to recognize the seven stages of sin. Recognize the seven stages of sin. This, um, a lot of, uh, uh, some of the church fathers talked about these seven stages. I know specifically St. John of Damascus did, and they were really interesting. I looked it over with a few um, people, and... Uh, it was very powerful to see these stages. Now, don't take these as scripture. Take these as Christians' observances of how they have fallen into sin, okay? But the seven stages are very interesting when you try to look at your own life. And this is how they work. The seven stages begin first with a provocation. It's a thought. The devil comes to us with an idea. Did you know, by the way, that he doesn't come to us with a pitchfork and a red tail smelling of smoke and saying i'm the devil try me not at all if it was like that it'd be so easy he instead comes to us in the form of an idea and not just any idea a lot of ideas come into our heads which are not worth giving much attention to he comes to us in the form of a good idea you want all the kingdoms of the world don't you jesus it's a pretty good idea All you gotta do is bow down, it's yours. It's a good idea. It's efficient. It's convenient. No cross. This is how he comes to us ideas that are efficient, that are convenient, that are comfortable. They promise uh, productivity. The idea, the provocation, that's where it begins. Then, second stage is coupling. So, once the provocation, the idea comes, we're provoked, coupling is when you then accept the thought and give it consideration. You deserve a raise. I do deserve a raise. Yeah, I deserve a raise then stage three happens stage three are the passions get excited we let our imagination dwell on the thought we excited by it i do deserve a raise in fact i'm better than joe why is joe even working with us and if i got a raise we could move out of our house and we can finally move into that side of the lake and we can uh and so forth it goes. Then it moves to stage four, and you begin to realize, wait a minute, or you should realize at some point, wait, wait, Uh, uh, red lights, the spirit in you saying, no, don't go down this road. You're being judgmental. You're getting greedy. You're beginning to elevate yourself. Stop. Stage four is when we wrestle. It's when we wrestle. Now we say, okay, here it is. Do I want this idea? Do I not? Am I going to go with it or am I not? This is a critical, the first stage, the thought is the first most critical. If we learn to identify thoughts coming from the devil right away, you save yourself a lot of problems. That is not a Christ, get out of here. Which is why the cruciform life is so important. That's not a Christ, get out of here. But if for some reason we don't recognize the thought, wrestling is when we have, when the red flags are going, pay attention to what's happening in your soul. Adam and Eve were provoked. Hey, have you considered this tree? They coupled the idea. Hmm. Their passions were aroused. It does look delicious. It looks good. What does it say? It was pleasing to the eye. The delight and desires were there. But you don't see them wrestle with the idea. It says they saw that it was good and they reached out and took it and took a bite. There was no wrestling match. There was no struggle. For us, wrestling would look like It is written. The idea comes to us. Maybe we weigh it and we're like, oh, it's interesting. And they're like, wait a minute. No, this is not interesting. This is demonic. And then it is written. Get out of here. That's wrestling. It's it's now bringing the resources of Christ and of the scriptures and of our faith and saying, okay, no, we're going to push against this. But sometimes we're weak and we don't make it through stage four. Or. Actually, in this, we do make it past stage four in a bad way. We go from wrestling, the fifth stage of sin is captivity. When you stop wrestling and you give up, now you've yielded yourself to it, and the sin is your master. And now the idea, you're going to do what it wants. When you stop wrestling, you've become a slave this is why we say slave and sin and slaves. This is why we say we're captives of, slave, of sin. This is why we say that Christ has liberated us from our sins because it doesn't have to hold us. But we often will voluntarily give ourselves up to it because we get tired in wrestling with sin. Hebrews chapter 12 it, paul there if it was paul who wrote hebrews he tells him look you have not resisted sin to the point of shedding blood so consider christ who endured so much for us on the cross because we know nothing about wrestling to that point we are so weary in our wrestling we're weaklings we're like well i try to push it out but it's still here i'll just give in it's too hard and then it felt good it was pleasing like yes that's off my back until you realize that now, the next time the idea comes, wrestling's going to become harder and harder because you're now creating a groove in which you slip into, okay, okay, I will serve you, I will serve you, I will serve you. And now you're a slave. And the provocation, the coupling, the passion, the wrestling, the captivity. Sixth is the ascent. You've given up on wrestling you're surrendered to it now you're the captive ascent is where you actually give approval to the idea you're like you know what actually this would be a good thing I could see this working out well and then step seven is when you actually act it's the actualization of that idea you put it into motion now you are not a sound effect I usually use but you are poop you're done you're toast so first be watchful Second, recognize these seven stages of sin. And, and notice, like when you confess your sins, it, sometimes it's a good idea to examine yourself. Where along that, did I even wrestle with this? Oh, Lord, why not? God, give me strength to wrestle. Or, or how come I didn't recognize that idea as demonic in the first place? The seven stages, recognizing those in our lives will help us. And, and eventually you can even say, like, oh, I am coupling. Let's stop now. <laughs> okay. It's just such a I'm coupling. Um, yeah, you don't want to be in bed with sin. Not a good idea. All right, so third, shield your heart with Scripture. Please don't overlook, brothers and sisters, the three times Jesus here says it is written. Shielding his heart with Scripture. I don't even desire indulging in my flesh. I don't desire putting God to the test. I do not desire serving the devil because my heart is shielded with scripture. Scripture has taught me what I should desire. Scripture has shown me what it looks like not to be in God's way. Scripture will be there to recall in the moment what I need. Scripture is the very life breath of God. Scripture will be there as power for us when we need it. But you have to take up that protection. You have to take the scriptures up. You're not just going to be sitting there going, oh, I'm tempted. Oh, what did Pastor Brandon say three weeks ago on this? You're never going to recall that as much as I wish you would. You're never going to. No, it's okay. Oh, I'm being tempted. I'm going to go find a Bible verse. That's great. Please do that. But better yet is second nature scripture coming out through you. When you see something that doesn't match up with God's word, you're like, no, 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 this isn't right. Because the word of God's in you. You read it, you pray it, you cherish it, you hear sermons, you study it, you whatever it is, you meditate on it, you're, you're getting scripture inside of you, and now it's second nature. And you're not, what is that verse? But it is part of your thinking and your way of living. That's what we want. Notice, by the way, that not, Jesus not only says it is written, but he's, he's citing it, right? He's not like, oh, pocket Bible, hold on, or, or, or U you, version app on my phone. Let me get the Bible app open. He's citing this, and furthermore, he's not citing John 3 16 or Jeremiah 29 11. These are great verses, but they're just popular and well known. Of course, he would know those. He's citing obscure, cite to me Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. Uh, but that's what he cites. That's the one you shall you shall put the Lord you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Deuteronomy six sixteen. Deuteronomy eight verse three. What is that? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word, mouth, word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Deuteronomy six thirteen. You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Deuteronomy. Real, that's Jesus' go-to quotation. Yep, he knew the scriptures. He loved them. They're part of who he is. You might say, well, he wrote them. Well, don't forget that he withheld his glory and came down to be a man. He was steeped in the scriptures too. Um, so let's let's shield our heart with scripture. Uh, Psalm 119, this is verse nine. Psalm 119, nine says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. My whole heart, with my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart. So what we're talking about. Having it part of us that I might not sin against you. So we triumph, in, we, tongue twisters here. we triumph in temptation by being watchful in prayer, by knowing or recognizing the seven stages of sin, third, by shielding our heart with scripture, and finally, by fasting. We should not overlook the very important detail at the outset of this story that Jesus was fasting 40 days and 40 nights this is why fasting is part of the christian 40-day journey to easter it's it's to help guard us against the things we're trying to turn away from jesus was just baptized he was just declared this is my beloved son with whom i'm well pleased that's chapter three then chapter four he's driven into the wilderness and now he's being tested and he's but he matched he meets it all because he's fasting now, I know, I know, because, and I, we've mentioned it a little bit because it came up in our other passages too. But of course, this is the season now where we really mention it. And some people are turned off by the whole concept of fasting. I understand that and I get it. You're like, oh, but fasting's like, it's religious. It's just works. It's just, and it's not for me. Um, I thought so too until I began to realize the benefits of fasting and that fasting doesn't have to look one way. There's not a one-size-fits-all for fasting. I was talking to one brother who said he just can't fast because his stomach literally has problems when he doesn't eat. Great. So his fast is going to look different. Um, some I, I talked to a sister who said that she can go all day forgetting to eat. It's not a problem for her. Like, yep, foregoing food is probably just normal for you then. Maybe your fast looks different. But a fast will awaken the soul as being a partner with the body. Brothers and sisters, our body is not against us, nor is our soul against the body, and the body is not against the soul. These are actually partners. The flesh, which is the fallen part of our body, yep, that has its own desires, and the spirit has its desires, those are at war with one another, but our body and our soul, these are, these are two parts of us that God has put together and they help each other. So what happens is we can help the soul by saying, body, let's turn you down a little bit right now. And sometimes, sometimes when you are incredibly fatigued and in a bad place in your thoughts, sometimes it's not prayer, it's sleep that will help you. Right? Sometimes there's this balance of taking care of the body and taking care of the soul. And it's knowing that they need to work together. And what fasting does is because we often allow our belly to be the dictator of how we go about our day. Definitely for me. Um, it says from, wait, wait a minute, body. You're not going to take the lead today. The soul's going to take the lead. So instead of that granola bar, we are going to pray Psalm 51. It's just that opportunity. And by the way, the original sin. The Bible opens with a fast in Genesis chapter 2. You can eat of any tree in the garden, just not that tree. That's a partial fast. You can eat all you want, but, but restrict yourself from this. The Bible begins with Adam and Eve breaking their fast. And it wasn't for the good. The New Testament begins with Jesus keeping his fast. And we find triumph and deliverance. The original sin, in other words, in one way to look at it, is it was an indulgence in the desires of the flesh. They were unwilling to say no to their body. And they just went with the desires and the passions of their flesh. St. John of Sinai one of those old guys called gluttony the price of our miss no the prince of our missteps the gateway to the passions so like adam and eve uh decide to eat when they weren't supposed to eat and eat what they weren't supposed to eat their gluttony their desire to have this anyway was the gateway to all else after this they lie to god they hide from god they blame each other and then Cain kills Abel. It's just all downhill from there. All because they were not willing to guard the original command of eat what and when I say and fast when I say. Um, St. John of Sinai also said, I love this too much to leave out. He called his belly the boisterous evil Lord. <laughs> the boisterous evil Lord. Oh, I'm going to keep... I'm gonna start, maybe we start calling our tummies that. <laughs> My boisterous evil lord wants ice cream. <laughs> um, now, of course, uh, oh, he also said this. He just had so many memorable quotes. I just threw a couple of them together. He also said, The ruler of the demons is the fallen Lucifer. The ruler of the passions of the flesh is gluttony. <laughs> okay, now, of course, there's nothing wrong with eating. There's nothing wrong. Like, food is not wrong. But, like Jesus was tempted when he's hungry, it's, it's when we are craving something in an imbalanced way the passions of the flesh that want to put me as lord over christ and follow my comforts that's when it can be wrong so obviously overeating can be wrong because it could feel so good over it doesn't later i know because i i'm a victim of gluttony which is why fasting's been so hard for me um Anyway, okay, so, uh, but but see, the problem, though, is that indulgence, whether it's in food or whether it's in information, we can be indulgent about information, people like me who love information, I can be overly indulgent and get very crabby when I'm overly indulgent in it. Uh, We can get overly indulgent about the news, about uh, just all kinds of things. We named some earlier about media devices, about our status, and we can just, we can indulge in the world so much. What happens with indulgence is that it causes us to move into negligence indulgence dulls the heart and we become negligent of christ i don't know if you've noticed but like when you eat a lot it's like prayers like yeah yeah i mean yeah i don't feel like it tonight or i could skip or when you fast if you've done a fast prayer seems impossible to skip up it's like what else am i doing this for i need something so give me prayer it does change us. when we are an overly indulged people, we become an overly negligent people of the things of the soul. Um, St. John of Damascus said this. He was the guy who talked about the seven stages of sin. He said, a life of bodily ease dulls the intellect and makes it clodish and brute-like and never lets it raise itself toward God and the promotion of virtues. Why do we have a, a culture indifferent toward God and virtue? Because we are indulgent of everything and it's given to us cheap and, f- and a lot of it free and accessible the world is at our fingertips and we are gorged to the full martin luther called fasting that which kills and subdues the pride and lusts of the flesh sounds important sounds helpful Lent's a good time to start? At least like once a week or something. Whatever it is. So you might be going, well, how do I fast? And I've been asked this, and I've asked this many times. I've asked this to all the books that don't talk back to me, and how to like, and I've asked around, and I got from other like traditions that actually talk about fasting as normative for the Christian life. Like, what? How do we fast? This is how we fast. I broke it down in three very simple ways. First, uh, from from, oh yeah, first kind of fast is called the black fast. Um, the black fast is where you don't eat all day, but at sundown you can have one meal. Your first meal is at sundown. That's the black fast. Of course, there are other fasts where you go just go days and days. Um, there's you actually need to be careful before you do that because like you need supplements and stuff before you just go without food for a long time. Like that can be dangerous. You gotta at least know a little bit, and you don't want to get too proud. You don't want to like over fast and like I'm Superman. That is a real temptation. So um, one the most common way through history has been the black fast. You just go all day without caffeine, just water, basically, just water all day. The caffeine part sometimes harder than the no food part. Uh, just water, and then at sundown, you can break fast. Um, the partial fast is where, yeah, I can't do that. I got to eat throughout the day. Great, eat all day if you want to, but... Don't eat this. It's kind of like the don't eat from that tree. So what you do is you eat raw fruits and veggies and nuts. That's it. Raw fruits and veggies and nuts. You can have those. They will help you not to collapse in your workday. But they're not going to make you feel the way a good loaf of bread might make you feel. Or a hamburger will make you feel. So it's a way of denying yourself yet being able to carry on. So that's the partial fast. And then finally, you have abstinence. And that's simply to cut out a food group. So you might be saying, you know, for Lent, I'm going to cut out chocolate, caffeine, sweets. I think someone said cheese, unless I heard that in my own head. Um, you, you just cut something out that might, yeah, that's called abstinence. That's like, I'm not just not going to eat this. Um, abstinence can also be stuff, like watching TV. I'm going to cut out TV for a while and replace that with scripture reading or with praying. Great, that works too. But here's my advice. Never cut out a food element because our stomachs are, for most normal people, that boisterous evil Lord. And you need to let that be denied. You can deny the other things too, but let something be denied to your stomach because it is the strongest drive that we have other than breathing. That's the first strongest drive. Okay, so there you have it. Be watchful in prayer. Oh, yeah, I want you guys to remember messages three days later. I'm just kidding. Um, I know the third one. Come on, nobody's helping me? You're all relishing in this. Oh yeah. Recognize the seven stages of sin. All... No one remembers themselves. What am I doing? We're done. We're just... <laughs> Shield your heart with scripture and fast. There are your four triumphs over temptation. Um so brothers and sisters. If we are willing to try to in Christ, with Christ, through Christ, rise and triumph over temptation, we will crush Satan under our feet. My favorite passage of late, which I for some reason never really noticed, was in the Bible. And that actually happens um, is Romans sixteen verse twenty. Paul tells the Romans, "You will. S- I want you to be innocent regarding what's evil and knowledgeable about what's regarding what regards good." And may you soon crush Satan under your feet. So good. It's Genesis 3.15. That we'll crush the serpent under our feet. Paul wants to see that happening in the saints. Let's triumph over temptation. Let's let that slithering serpent who thinks he's going to get us and be like, (laughs) I've been fasting. I've been watching in prayer. I know the seven stages you use. And I've been guarding my heart with scripture. Father, take us to...